Well, there was a pastor of a church, and one Sunday morning, he suddenly announced that he was resigning from the church and that he was just going to go into prayer and seek God, what God had for his life. And after the service, uh, one older woman, she was quite distraught about the pastor's resignation. She said, oh, Pastor Bob, you know, we're going to miss you so much. We we don't want you to go. And and Pastor Bob uh, patted the older lady on the head and said, now, now, Carolyn, you know, I, I thank you for, for your concern and, 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 your, and your love for me. But my guess is that pastor who takes my place is probably going to even be better than I, than I was. And yeah, Carolyn said with a, you know, kind of a tone of disappointment in her voice. And she said, that's what they said the last time also. I'm sure uh, Carolyn kind of gave that pastor a different perspective on his ministry skills in preaching, one that he probably didn't want. And this morning, as we continue our study in the book of Revelation, we are going to meet two disturbing individuals who are going to give the entire world a different perspective on reality. I've entitled the message this morning, Can I Have a Witness? Can I Have a Witness? Father, I just thank you for what has transpired up to this point. And uh, I just thank you for each person here. And I just ask Holy Spirit that you would just bless them. You called them here. There's a reason that they're here. I don't believe anything happens by happenstance. And so I'm just asking right now that you will pour out your great grace upon each person here. You will pour out your great grace and mercy upon this time as we look at your word. Your word was designed to change, to set free, to bless. And I'm asking that it's going to do all those things this morning as we look into your word. And so I just give you this time. I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would fill me truly from the soles of my feet to the crown of my head, that I would not speak the words of a man. What we need now more than ever in this day and time is your message and your word and your truth. And so I'm asking that it will come out unvarnished. I'm asking that it will do all that you determine in eternity past that it will do. I'm asking that you will now come upon this congregation in a powerful, powerful way. That you, Holy Spirit, will just exalt Jesus now. And that no one will walk out of here without knowing that there truly is a living God. And so I'm thankful what you're going to do now, and I just praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Skip, can you play the video? When they finish their testimony, 
The beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. In the same hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second war was passed. Behold, the third war is coming quickly. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God. We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come. Because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. And the time of the dead, that they should be judged. And that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints. And those who fear your name, small and great. And should destroy those who destroy the earth. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven. And the Ark of His Covenant was seen in His temple. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. What you just heard is Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11 has two great subjects. The first subject is the two witnesses, and the second subject is the seventh trumpet. And so what I'd first like to do is look at the first great subject, and the first great subject, of course, is the two witnesses. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me and in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 11, and I'm just going to read verses 3 through 6, and we'll look at these two witnesses for a moment. It says this in Revelation chapter 11. Starting at verse 3, and I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, that's three and a half years, and they were clothed in sackcloth, and sackcloth, of course, is a very coarse material, it's very itchy, and it generally means a sign of mourning. It says that these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. This imagery comes from the Hebrew prophet Zechariah. And so one of the things that we know is whoever these two witnesses are, they're clearly Jewish in race. And it says, if anyone tries to harm them, 
Fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now, you know, when anyone reads Revelation chapter 11, there's a lot of interest and speculation as to who are these two witnesses. And I am fairly certain that one of the witnesses is none other than Elijah the Tishbite. And the reason I say this is because of the Italian prophet Malachi, otherwise known as Malachi. He wrote the last book of the Bible uh, in the Old Testament. And here's what he wrote in chapter 4, Malachi. See, he said, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of their children to the fathers. Or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Malachi makes it crystal clear that before the opening of the seventh seal or at the opening of the seventh seal, Elijah the prophet must come. He must come before the judgment of God, before the day of the Lord. And interestingly enough, we are told in 2 Kings, you know, chapter 2, that Elijah the prophet never died. Most people don't know that, or a lot of people don't know that, that Elijah is one of the very few people that actually never experienced death. In fact, if you look at the book of 2 Kings in chapter 2, we see that Elijah was actually taken up to heaven in a whirlwind in a chariot. Skip, can you show that picture? And there are those theologians that surmise that one of the reasons maybe Elijah must come back is that he must die. And we saw in Revelation chapter 11 that at the end of the ministry of these two witnesses, they are martyred, they are killed. We are also told this though in Revelation chapter 11 verse 6, that the two witnesses have the power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain. Interestingly enough, if you read 1 Kings in chapter 17, we see Elijah the Tishbite, Elijah the prophet, and he confronts that bloated toad, King Ahab. And the reason why he confronts him is because of his wickedness as a king. And he tells King Ahab, he prophesied that it will not rain in the land of Israel. And interestingly enough, it did not rain for three and a half years in Israel. And finally, in Matthew, in chapter 17, we see Jesus Christ. And he takes Peter, James, and John up on a mountain. And while Jesus is up on that mountain, we are told that suddenly he is transfigured. He becomes as bright as the sun. And as he is standing there and he is transfigured, then Elijah appears. And he is the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. And then Moses appears. And of course, he is the great lawgiver. And they have a conversation with Jesus. There you see the picture. And there they're going to tell Jesus what is going to happen to him when he goes to Jerusalem. So for these reasons that I've just listed, I am almost absolutely certain that one of the witnesses is none other than Elijah. Many other people feel that because of the Mount of Transfiguration and that Moses was with him, they feel that Moses will be the second witness. And that certainly is a good guess. And interestingly enough, we're told that one of the great miracles that the two prophets do is this in Revelation eleven six. It says this, they have the power 
to turn the waters to blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague. And if you know about Moses the Magnificent's ministry, when he confronted the great Pharaoh of Egypt, he did exactly these miracles against the great Pharaoh. So my guess is, is that the two witnesses, and there's no surprise there, are Elijah and Moses, if I was a betting man, but I am not a betting man. Now, that wasn't even of interest to me. Here's really what's of interest to me as I looked at Revelation chapter 11. And I pray that it's going to be of interest to you. What's of interest to me is the names aren't given. Why are the names not given? You know, we as human beings, our first inclination is we want to know the names of these two prophets. And it seemed to me as I was praying about this and and asking the Lord about it, I got the impression that he isn't interested in names, in fact. We are interested in names. Fallen humanity is interested in names. In fact, you know, we're impressed with certain names. Trump, Rockefeller, Kennedy, Hearst, Clinton. These names mean something to us in our culture, in our society. We are impressed with certain names. I want you to know, though, that God is not impressed with the name. You know what God is impressed with? God is impressed with who you are. He's impressed with who you are and you are. And he's impressed with who I am as a person. These two men are simply identified as two witnesses of God. That's a noun, not a verb. They are witnesses. That's who they are. The big question is, biblically, what does it mean to be a witness for God? Here's what it means. A witness for God is someone who testifies to the truth. A witness for God is someone who testifies to the truth and lives out the truth. They make a stand for the truth. And there's no better description of these two witnesses than that. In fact, we are first told in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 3 that these men prophesied for 1,260 days. That means this. Do you know what a prophet is? They were literally prophets of God. They weren't just witnesses. They were prophets. A prophet is someone who is a mouthpiece for God. And what these two witnesses did did is they faithfully proclaimed God's message. They didn't preach fluff. They weren't interested in making you like them. They were not interested in winning people's applause. They, first and foremost in their mind, said, I represent God and I'm going to faithfully give you what God has said. And now more than ever in this hour is it necessary that we have witnesses that actually will stand up and tell what God is actually saying. They gave his message. They didn't give fluff. And God's message is always twofold. The first part of God's message, if you want to know a true messenger of God, their message is always twofold. The first part of the message that God always gives humanity is to repent. It always start, Even Jesus started out with repent. Now, I know we look at that negatively. It's not a negative word at all. And what it means to is to stop, to turn away from living for yourself. Stop seeking, and this is going to make sense at the end here. Stop seeking to please your flesh. Stop loving this world. 
So when Jesus said repent and John the Baptist said repent and the two witnesses are going to say repent, what they're saying is turn away from this world. This world you're going to see ultimately is going to come to nothing. The second part of God's message is always surrender. Completely and totally surrender yourself to God. In this case, Jesus Christ. Here's what happens when you do it. And this is why it's so beautiful. Because if you truly repent and you turn from yourself, from loving this world and trying to be something, and you surrender yourself completely to God, then you can begin to experience his marvelous mercy and forgiveness that he offers at the cross. And there's not a person in here this morning that does not need to experience on a regular basis the forgiveness of God. And when I truly surrender to Jesus Christ, the next thing I experience is his amazing grace. Everybody knows the song Amazing Grace. You know what it means to experience amazing grace? It means to live in the power of God so that you can have the power to overcome Satan, that you have the power to overcome the world, that you have the power to overcome your flesh. There's no greater prison that most people live in than to live in their various strongholds and addictions. And what a shame. Because you see, when you truly repent and you surrender to Jesus, he gives you amazing grace, amazing power to overcome your addictions. He doesn't want you to live there. He doesn't want you to live there. Jesus said, if the sun comes and and the sun sets you free, you shall be free indeed. You can be free even this morning. And finally, when you really surrender to Jesus, listen to this now. You can begin to walk in this incredible plan that he has for your life. And I want to reveal what that is in just a moment. So these two witnesses, though, not only faithfully proclaimed the truth, I want you to understand something. They lived it out. It said that they were dressed in sackcloth, and I have no doubt they wore sandals. Please notice, it does not say that they were dressed with Armani suits and Gucci shoes. No, I mean, if you look today and you watch the preachers today on television, you get the idea, you know, that, that, that you know, being a preacher or, or being a servant of God is, is you know, you're, you're raking in the bucks or something. I want you to understand these two witnesses are faithful not only in preaching the message, but they actually live it out. They actually live it out. And you say, well, what do you mean by that? What I mean by that is they were not impressed with the world. They did not care about the applause of the world. They don't care about the toys that the world has to offer. They're not interested in the titles that the world offers. And they're not interested in the money or the wealth that the world offers, unlike so often that you see today with the preachers. They're very, now listen to this, their very lives and their very message condemned the values as well as the priorities of this world. They ultimately said, I want you to know this, that the values and the priorities of this world are ultimately meaningless. And guess what? The world hated them. Jesus said, you know, he said this. He said, you know, if the world hated me, it's going to hate my followers. And the world hated them. It says, in fact, if you look again in Revelation 11, it said that these guys are preaching 1,260 days. That's three and a half years. And in those three and a half years, they're faithful to speak the message of God that I just gave you. And they're faithful to live it out. Skip, can you put up the chart for a moment just to kind of give you where they're at? I believe that the witnesses, the two witnesses, are in the latter half of the tribulation period. 
there from the midpoint when the Antichrist walks into the temple and says to the world, I am your Messiah. I can solve your problem. To the Buddhist, I'm Buddha. To the Muslims, I'm the 12th Imam. To the Christians, I'm your Messiah. And at that point, I think they come onto the scene and they confront the Antichrist. In fact, we're told for three and a half years, they're just beating the Antichrist up. And at the end of three and a half years, their ministry of faithful, being a faithful witness, it says that the Antichrist martyrs them. He kills these two witnesses. And what does the world do? Now, this is what amazes me. The world actually celebrates. It's like, no, it's like Christmas. It says that the world begins to give gifts to one another because these two men of God have been killed. Can you believe that? I mean, you talk about a twisted world. How twisted can you get when you begin to call evil good and good evil? And that's exactly what you see happening there. And what concerns me is that's what you're seeing happening more and more in our world. We're more and more seeing that evil is called good and good is called evil. And that, I believe, is one of the great signs that we are entering what we call the last days. All right, here's something that it might be of interest to you. A lot of people miss this. Skip, can you put up Revelation 11 verses 7 through 10? It says this, now when they had finished their testimony, that's the prof, or the, the two witnesses, the beast that comes up from the abyss, that's the Antichrist, will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt where also their Lord was crucified. That's interesting term for Jerusalem. For three and a half days, men, watch this now, men from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse to bury them. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and they will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. Now, did you catch it? See, most people just kind of slide right by that. Now, do you realize when this was written, this was written in 90 AD. This was written in 90 AD. Now, let me ask you this question. How is it possible for people in 90 AD to see an event, in this case, two, these two witnesses lying in the streets of Jerusalem, how is it possible for them to see all the inhabitants of the world at the same time see the exact same event? How is that possible? In, in 90 AD? I, maybe Al Gore was alive then. I don't know. Yeah. No, think about this. 90 AD, that doesn't make any sense. In 1000 AD, now get this. In 1000 AD, they were screaming that it was the end of the world. The end of the world is coming. Now, because it was the turn of the millennium, a brand new millennium. Would it be possible in the millennium for everyone all around the world exactly at the same time to see the exact same event? And the answer is no. How about even in the 1970s and 1980s? By the way, in the 1970s, you lived in the 1980s, but there was great fervor again that we're in the end of the days for various reasons. And I'm going to tell you, even in the 1970s and 1980s, this still wasn't possible. It absolutely was not possible yet. So how is it, here's my question, how is it possible, how is it possible for a person in Africa, Afghanistan, Cambodia, Siberia, China, France, Canada, Mexico, Brazil, and Albany, New York, to see the exact same event. That would be two witnesses lying in the streets of Jerusalem exactly at the same time. And the answer is technology. Skip, can you put up the picture? I love this picture. 
That's a real picture. That is a real picture. And I want you to know that it's because of solar technology. This is happening. You, you, you're, you, we laugh at this. This is actually happening in very remote areas. They got their own solar panels because of solar technology, satellite technology, smartphones, iPhones, iPads. It is now possible. It is now possible for the first time, almost ever, that we all can see exactly at the same time the exact same event. So we could actually see an event in Jerusalem, two witnesses killed, and all of us see it exactly at the same time. Revelation 11, for the first time, can become possible. That's, I believe, is another sign that we are in the end of days. So now let me just kind of move to application. And I want to ask you a very important question. Here's the very important question. What is the most important profession? What is the most important calling that you can have on planet Earth? Jesus Christ himself gives the answer to that question. He answered it in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Before his ascension, this may have been his very last words, he said this. He said this to the disciples. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And then you will be my witnesses. And now you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and then in Judea and then in Samaria and then in the uttermost parts of the earth. I'm going to tell you right now that the greatest calling you can have on your life, now listen to me, the greatest calling you can have on your life, the greatest job, the greatest profession you can have is for Jesus Christ to call you and you and you and say, I want you to be my witness on planet Earth. And I want the final minutes, I want to drive this home that you'll never, ever forget what you see. I want to make this point sing, if nothing else. If, if I never do anything else, I want you to understand there is nothing greater, no greater calling than to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to call you to be his personal witness on planet Earth. Skip, can you put up? Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints, and those who have reverenced your name, both small and great, and for the destroying those who have destroyed the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened. And within his temple was seen the Ark of the Covenant, and there came flashes of lightnings, rumblings, peals of thunder, and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. This is the beginning, the opening of the seventh trumpet. This is the second major subject of Revelation and chapter 11. Skip, can you put up the chart real quick? I just want you to see where we are. With the seventh trumpet, it contains what we call the seven bold judgments. 
You see, that's the last 30 days of the tribulation period. So you're going to see these bold judgments come. Boom, 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 and boom. And then comes the battle of Armageddon and Jesus Christ comes back. Now, here's my question. And you can see, by the way, the bold judgments in Revelation 16. Now, here's my question. What do you think the earth looks like after the seven trumpet judgments and then the seven bold judgments? Have you ever thought about that? What do you think the earth will look like? Skip, can you put up the picture? It will look like that. It will, I, I want you to take a good look at it. By the time God gets done judging the earth, and there's a point to it, by the time God gets done judging the earth, it's going to be nothing more than pulverized rock. It's just going to be ashes. There's going to be virtually nothing left. And so here's my question. If Jesus tells us that this is how the earth will look at the end, this is what's going to be left of planet earth, that it's going to be nothing more than this, then what really matters in the end? If in the end, all of the great empires, all of the great glory of the empires, all of the great accomplishments that people have done in this world, for this world, if in the end, it's all going to end just like this, then what really matters That's what I want to ask. No, I want you to think about this. What really matters in the end? You know, if you visit San Jose, California, there will be a place that you wouldn't want to miss. And it's called the Winchester Mystery House. Skip, can you put up the picture? There's a picture of the Winchester Mystery House. And to say the least, it's kind of a very odd house. In fact, if you go inside the Winchester Mystery House, you will find that there are actually stairways that go nowhere. Skip, can you put that up? There, really, there, there, there's a whole raft of those that go, just go absolutely nowhere. And as you saw in the first picture, Skip puts it back up, you can see it. It's, it's literally a sprawling house all over. It's one of the most odd houses on the entire planet. And the big question is, why would you build a house like that? And as Paul Harvey says, here's the rest of the story. Sarah Winchester married a man by the name of William Winchester. William Winchester made the Winchester rifle famous. William Winchester died in 1914 of influenza. He left his entire wealth to his wife, Sarah Winchester. Sarah Winchester moved to San Jose, California, where she got involved in spiritism. And one night she was in a seance. And in the seance, the clairvoyant told her this, you will never die if you continue to build a house. Sarah Winchester didn't want to die, so she immediately got on to building a house. You're looking at the house. She spent $5 million on her home. Now, remember, this is like 1915, 1960, when a contractor would make 50 cents an hour, all right? And this huge, sprawling house that you're looking at has 150 rooms, 13 bathrooms, 2,000 doors, and 10,000 windows. Matt Molossi and Pella Windows would love to have that job. When she died, now I want you to notice, she did die. When she died, so the clairvoyant was wrong, she left enough material to continue building that house for 80 years. Now, a lot of us, and I, you know, I, I looked at that story and I thought, that's an idiot. <laughs> no, what person in the world, no, I said, what person in the world is foolish enough to believe that if you keep building a house, you will never die? But then I thought of this, you know, it popped in my mind. How was Sarah Winchester really any different from a person of this world 
who lives for themselves and tries to build their own name and their own little comfortable kingdom. When, when Jesus said, skip, put it back up. When Jesus said in Revelation that the world is going to end just like this. Skip, can you put that picture up? And it's going to come up. There it is. No, no. See, now we say Sarah, no, no. We say Sarah Winchester is crazy. And, and she, she was nuts to do that. But how nutty are you and I if I sit there and build my little world, my little life, when I know in fact that in the end, in the end, all the earth is going to be is pulverized rock. Anything previous is going to be forgotten in the dust and the sands of time. J.J. Watt. Skip, can you put up his picture? Some of you might be familiar with J.J. Watt. J.J. Watt plays football, obviously. He is the defensive end for the Houston, Texas. He's all pro. Now, I, I really don't watch that much football. I just happened to see this this week, in fact, and it really kind of blew my mind. J.J. Watt is in line. He's having such a stellar season. Many say that he's going to become the most valuable player. Now, that's a very unique thing. He's a defensive lineman. Do you know that a defensive lineman has not won the MVP award for over 40 years? You know who the last defensive lineman to do it was? See, you're not Minnesota Viking fans. Alan Page did it. Alan Page is the last defensive lineman to do that. And so he was being interviewed by a female reporter. And this is what I caught. I caught the interview. And she said, you know, you are doing incredible things on the football field right now. How are you able to do those? And J.J. Watt said this. He said, look, and, you know, he wasn't trying to brag. He was trying to be kind of humble. But he goes, I work really hard. I work hard, harder than probably almost every other football player in the NFL. I not only train off-season, he goes, I train in-season. He goes, I am always in the weight room. I am always trying to better myself. And then the second question came up. She said, well, um, do you have anyone special in your life? You know, like a wife, uh, uh, you know, a girlfriend. And here, th- this is what really got me. He goes, he looked at her almost incredulous. He goes, well, I don't have time. He goes, I don't have a wife. I don't intend, he said, to have a wife. And I don't have a girlfriend. He goes, it wouldn't be fair. He goes, I do not have time. He said this, I do not have time to have a wife. And I do not have time to have a girlfriend. I am too busy training and making myself better. Then she asked the third question. She goes, why are you doing all this? You're passing up a wife. You're passing up a life. You're passing up everything that people consider important. And she goes, why are you doing this? And you know what J.J. Watt said? He was, again, incredulous. He goes, because of greatness. He goes, I want to be great. And I thought, I had, I had just read Revelation 11. I thought, what an idiot. <laughs> no, no, he, he said, this guy, and no, he, he's going to be in the football hall of fame. And in the end, you know what the football hall of fame is going to look like in Canton, Ohio? It's going to be, Skip puts a picture. No, think about this. I want you to think about it. It's going to look like that. Revelation, no. People don't understand. Revelation is a gut check. It's a reality check. Don't waste your life on that which is transitional and transitory. Don't do it. The Apostle Peter says in 2 Peter in chapter 3, these incredible words. He says this. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, as you just saw, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to going to Disneyland. 
and building bigger homes and seeking greatness in this world and having an awesome retirement plan. Does it say that? No. It says, as you look forward, now watch this, to the day of God, his kingdom, and you speed its coming. Do you see that Peter entirely agrees with Jesus? He is saying, don't waste your life on that which is temporal. Don't waste your life on that which is transient. Do you know what you ought to be and I ought to be? Now listen to me on this final point. You and I have the great privilege of being a witness. Do you know what we're supposed to be doing? We are supposed to be like large neon signs to the world, telling them faithfully, don't do it. Don't waste your life on yourself. Don't waste your life on on trying to be comfortable here. Don't waste your life on trying to make a name for yourself because it's all going to come to an end. We are to be like large warning signs. Do not do that. Instead, turn to Jesus. Turn to him and live for the kingdom that shall live forever and reign forever and ever and ever. That is what we're here for. No, plain and simple, I can't tell. Do not stoop, as Spurgeon said, to be a king of this world. Don't you do it. You have the highest calling. I have the highest calling to be this incredible warning sign to these people out here. Stop your insanity. And turn to Jesus before it's too late. And you can do something with your life. And I have two questions at the end. My two questions are simply this. In your speech, as you talk to people, what do you really talk about? Is it gossip? Is it the tawdry things of this world? The transient things? The things that ultimately will come to nothing? Or when you speak, do you speak of eternal things that ultimately bring life to the soul of a person? And secondly, in your actions, in my actions, what do my actions show? What do my priorities show? Do my actions, my priorities show that this world really does matter and it's really important? And in the end, that's what's really going to make a difference is that you were something in this world? Or does my life really show that this world doesn't matter and what really matters is eternity? In Jesus' kingdom. That's what Revelation 11 is really about. These two witnesses show us they got it. They got it. The question is, do we get it? That's my prayer. And I applaud you for being so far up through these first 11 chapters. It's even going to get better, though. There's great hope because let me tell you, if you're on the side of Jesus, you win. It, no, no. You win. I, I know right now you're not getting the applause of the world, and you're not going to. But I want you to know the day you die or the day you see Jesus, you will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You will hear it for an eternity, and it will be well, well worth it. Father. I thank you for every person this morning that heard this. And I pray, Holy Spirit, as we move to this final song, you will speak to us.
we have an opportunity to do something incredible with our lives, each one of us. You wouldn't have called the person here this morning if you weren't asking them to be your witness, your representative here on planet Earth. I pray that every one of us will answer that call. We will truly answer that call. And I ask for this in your precious name. Amen.